Well, good morning, church family. Welcome. And you on live stream, welcome to you as well. Uh, if you are watching via live stream, we will be sharing communion later at the end of our service, so you might be prepared for that. And you're all probably wondering what this crazy thing is. That is a prize. And uh, it's a pretty cool prize for our question of the week for all you youth out there. Uh, before I forget, I just want to give you a little heads up on that. This morning, you're going to want to be listening for a one-word definition of sin, okay? A one-word definition of sin. Today is the second part of last week's message. If you weren't here, please watch that online because it is foundational for what we're going to talk about today. As Aaron shared last week, one of the most controversial issues among Christians today is how we as New Testament believers are to apply the Old Testament and, and Old Testament laws. I mean, you look at your Bible, and the Old Testament takes up a pretty good chunk of your Bible, right? And so having a clear, crystal clear understanding of, of how we look at that, what lens we read that through in light of the new covenant is absolutely essential for every believer. John Wesley said that perhaps there are few subjects within the whole compass of religion so little understood as this. It's little understood. Last week we looked at many of the conflicting ways that Christians today view and apply Old Testament laws. We, we don't agree on them. For example, I know Christians who feel obligated to keep a weekly Sabbath rest. And we're going to devote a whole message to the Sabbath in about a month. Some people think it should be on Sundays. Other people are absolutely convinced it should be on Saturdays. Some people think that the actual day doesn't really matter. And other people don't think that we need to observe it at all. It may seem academic, but if we don't have strong convictions on this, we can feel very insecure when people, when we hear people make strong cases for alternate applications of Old Testament laws like this one. I've listened personally to Seventh-day Adventists build the case for observing the Saturday Sabbath and, and how people will actually go to hell for not observing it on that day. It's pretty disturbing. It can rattle you. And so it's vital for us to be absolutely convinced that we are no longer under the law, bound to the law, or obligated to the law in any way, shape, or form. Are you hearing me? The New Testament and New Covenant are now the rightful focus of our attention. And so today, I want to reinforce some of the things that Aaron shared and add a few more ways that the Old Testament law is still useful. All of this has direct bearing on the gospel, the good news of our salvation. You know, we have an adversary who just loves to keep us in bondage to legalism, to fears, to doubts of all kinds. So how about we pray again? 
this morning before we begin. Father, we do love you. We worship you this morning. We thank you that you are the great burden bearer. All of us today have burdens of various kinds, big and small. And Lord, I think of the, the burden of the law and just, just uh, what a yoke it was on your people. And yet it was a necessary yoke to, to show people its, its inadequacy in the, in the long run. It, it was to point to something bigger, something better. Thank you that you bore the greatest burden, Lord, ever borne the weight and burden of our sin that would have dragged us down to hell forever and ever. God, we pray that you would give us depth of conviction this morning. You say with that comes greater joy and peace. We want that. So please use this time and instruct us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to kind of back up a little bit before we get into our, our main topic, and begin by asking the question, why is there such a thing as law at all in the universe? What is it with law? Why is there law? Now, you might be tempted to say that laws exist to restrain evil, and that's true, but Law was in the world before evil existed. God gave Adam and Eve a law not to eat from the one tree of the garden in Eden. So laws are not just for a fallen creation. They are part of God's perfect creation. It's because of sin that we don't like laws. We don't like limits or constraints on our lives. Many people think, you know, that Freedom to think and speak and do as we like is the ultimate definition of happiness. In other words, no boundaries. It's a common sentiment today in our world. Some ancient civilizations actually tried that, and many did, including ancient Israel. In the book of Judges, it it, it was basically anarchy. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But guess what? As, as, as appealing as it might sound, to have no boundaries, no authorities, it didn't work. It did not work. Because one person's rights and freedoms inevitably trample upon other people's rights and freedoms. Right? And what you end up with really is the concept of might makes right. Or the person with the biggest army is the only one who gets to ultimately do what he wants. But even when a nation has lots of laws, lots of laws, that alone is not enough to create an ordered society. John Adams, one of the founding fathers of our country, famously said this, our constitution, our laws, It was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. What's he saying? He's saying without a fear of God, 
You cannot create a sufficient number of laws to curb sinful behavior. You can't. Because the flesh is so deceitful, it will always find new ways to sin. For example, do you know how many laws the United States has made in its attempts to curb wrong behavior? Over 30,000. In other words, Americans have found 30,000 different ways to do wrong. And we keep needing to create hundreds of additional new laws every year. Why? Because they don't work in a society where conscience and a fear of God are absent. They don't work. When you have those internal self-governing forces at work, all you need are just two commandments. Love God. And love your neighbor as yourself. But when you don't have them, even a hundred thousand, even a million laws will never be enough. And that's why all human governments inevitably move toward a very heavy handed totalitarianism. Strict external control is the only way to control people who have no internal controls. Does it make sense? I would like to propose that real happiness does not result from the absence of boundaries. I once heard about a school playground that was on the corner of a very busy street, like, like in you know, New York City. It was a good-sized playground with all kinds of fun playground equipment, but the kids only made use of a very small part of it. They tended to huddle in the middle of it, far away from all the dangerous traffic, so someone decided to put a fence around it. Brilliant. (laughs) Suddenly, the kids began utilizing the entire playground to the fullest. You see, their enjoyment of it was maximized, not by the lack of boundaries, but by the presence of boundaries. In the same way, God is not some kind of old stick in the mud or cosmic killjoy. Do you really want to know why he gave us his laws? He passionately tells us in Deuteronomy 5.29. He says, oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always. Why? That it may be well with them and with their sons forever. God is not on a power trip. He is a passionate parent who is just passionate about his children's well-being. The whole universe runs on laws, right? Laws that require things to operate certain ways. Life cannot exist without them. In fact, nothing can exist without them. (coughs) Laws of motion, laws of physics, thermodynamics, magnetism, gravitation, dozens more. And just as physical laws make physical life possible, so Spiritual and moral laws make spiritual life possible. 
That's the universe we live in. We live in a morally discriminating universe because God is a moral being. His laws are not arbitrary. They are inseparable from who he is. God is holy. And that means that there is such a thing as being unholy or sinful. Do you know how the Bible defines sin? It defines it as lawlessness. How interesting. 1 John 3, 4 says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It's a good definition. I wanted to begin with that this morning because some people think that we are no longer under or that some people think that because we're no longer under the jurisdiction of the law or accountable to it, we now have a license to do anything we want. That common error is usually the result of Christians pitting the law against grace by portraying God's law as the bad guy and God's grace as the good guy that replaces it. So here's what that looks like. We put God as the goal at the top of the triangle, and we can either try to approach him by our obedience to the law or by grace. You see here, law and grace are viewed as opposites, right? Does this ring true to you or look familiar? It's very common, but there's a problem. There's a problem here. In this illustration... The importance of obedience is minimized, if not eradicated. But did you know that there are actually more commandments in the New Testament than there are in the Old? The Old Testament has 613 distinct commands. The New Testament has around 800. So, when thinking about our relationship to the law, I think we should view it this way. The goal portrayed in both the Old and New Testament is obedience to God. And in both the Old and New Testament, the kind of obedience that God desires is called the obedience of faith on the right. Or that is obedience that is prompted by faith. When we're obeying God by faith, that means that we're trusting in our standing before him as not being a function of our keeping the law, but as a result of his unmerited grace toward us. So we obey out of love and gratitude and worship. Jesus says this three times in John 14. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. This is the obedience of faith. And its motivation is love. Again, we see this in Romans 8.4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, where? In us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now back in in contrast, 
to this, obedience by works or works of the flesh still means that we're obeying, but the motivation is totally different. It's an obedience to earn God's favor and acceptance and salvation. This is how every religion, apart from Christianity, operates. And God says that all who seek to obey him out of that motivation, obedience by works, they are under a curse. A curse. I've met Christians who think that, you know, they're obligated to keep all the Jewish feasts and even some of the the dietary laws. They try to somehow cover all their bases, mixing together as much as they can from both Judaism and Christianity, thinking that that will kind of make them somehow extra, extra righteous. But the proper use of the Old Testament law is neither to divorce it from our Christianity nor to incorporate it into our Christianity. Do you catch that? The proper use of Old Testament law is neither to divorce it from our Christianity nor to incorporate it into our Christianity. But those are the two simplistic extremes that people tend to gravitate to. As we learned last week, the Bible has a more nuanced approach. Legally, none of the Old Testament ceremonial, civil, or moral laws are binding on us at all period. But from an instructive point of view, they are all still relevant and practical to us. It's a critical distinction. Just to reiterate what Aaron shared last week, the teachings of Christ and his apostles give us many different ways that the New Testament addresses Old Testament laws. Let's look at them. Number one, Some laws are annulled. They're gone. Like all the dietary restrictions. In Mark 7, Jesus declared all foods clean. All those dietary laws are annulled. Two, some laws are reiterated. Nine of the Ten Commandments are reiterated. It's not that they carry a cross. You're starting on a clean slate and they... They are reinstated, they're reiterated, all except the one about the Sabbath. Three, some laws are transformed, like the Saturday Sabbath was changed to Sunday to commemorate Christ's resurrection and to point to the sustained eternal rest that we have through his finished work on the cross. Hebrews 4, 9, and 10 says, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now most of the Israelites did not make it to the promised land because of their disobedience, right? They did not enter that symbolic place of rest. You know, the land flowing with milk and honey. But we have entered it because we are no longer working and striving to earn our way to heaven. We have rested on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Four, some laws are expanded. Think of the the laws concerning murder and adultery and divorce and oaths and an eye for an eye and loving your enemies. Matthew 5, 21 to 22, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. 
And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus expanded many laws like the one on murder to include our thoughts and our words. And fifth, some laws are just brand new. Like love one another as I've loved you, appointing elders. And John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So you so also are to love one another. And Mark 1, 15, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's a command in the New Testament. It's a new, brand new command. And there are scores of new commands and prohibitions and instructions in the New Testament that you don't find in the old. It's up to 800. So just to review and summarize, we saw last week that the Old Testament is now described as weak, useless, obsolete, ready to vanish away. It made nothing perfect. It was a mere shadow of the good things that have now come. So our focus now is on the teaching of Christ and his apostles and how they interpret and apply all of the Old Testament. Again, it's according to them that some Old Testament laws are annulled, some are reiterated, some are transformed, some are expanded, and some are brand new. But, It's vital that we understand that in neither the Old or New Testament has salvation ever been a function of our obedience to God's laws. That's another common misperception that somehow the Old Testament believers were connected to God because of their their obedience to the law. We know that's not true because Abraham was declared righteous before God because of his faith about 400 years before the law was given to Moses, and then about 400 years after the law was given to Moses, King David was also declared righteous by faith. It says that in Romans 4, 1 to 8. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then regarding David, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. So God could declare people righteous or in a right standing with him by their faith even before Jesus died on the cross, thousands of years beforehand, in anticipation of the certainty of that future event of his death on the cross. Just as now, he declares us righteous based on the fact of Jesus' death 2,000 years ago. That's how that works. So what are a few more uses of the law that we see today? Number one, it's useful to convict the lost of their sin. This is probably one of the biggest ones. 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 10. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. What do we need to know about it? Realizing that the law, the fact that the law is not made for the righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, 
for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Paul says in Galatians that the Old Testament law now serves as our tutor or our teacher to define and expose people's sin and then point them to their need for a savior. So for us as Christians, this means that the law, especially the Ten Commandments, is going to be a primary tool for us to use in our efforts to evangelize the lost. People don't see their need for Christ unless they're first made painfully aware of how completely they have broken God's laws and are deserving of his wrath. J. Gresham Mason put it this way, although Christianity does not end with a broken heart, it does begin with the broken heart. It begins with the consciousness of sin. Without the consciousness of sin, the whole of the gospel will seem like an idle tale. But how can the consciousness of sin be revived? Something, no doubt, can be accomplished by the proclamation of the law of God. For the law reveals transgressions. He goes on, when a man comes under the conviction of sin, his whole attitude toward life is transformed. He wonders at his former blindness and the message of the gospel, which formerly seemed to be an idle tale, becomes now instinct with light. But it is God alone who can produce the change. You might have heard of uh, a man named Ray Comfort. He's a modern-day evangelist, very effective. Here's one of his observations. He says, I've noticed an interesting irony when, talking, when taking people through the Ten Commandments in, in his evangelism. He says an honest person will admit he's a liar, while a liar will insist that he's honest. Isn't that interesting? Jesus used this approach when he expanded the law to include even our thoughts, because by that standard, it's quickly apparent that no one is without guilt. One classic example where he used the law in his evangelism is in Matthew 19, 16 to 22. Let's read this. And behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter, in, enter life, keep the commandments. He said, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These are right out of the, the Ten Commandments. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Now, Jesus is not preaching salvation by works here. He's exposing the lack of truthfulness behind this man's claims. See, all the laws that Jesus quoted were, were man-centered laws, how we're to treat our fellow man. And the point is, if this man truly loved his neighbor as himself, as he claimed he did... 
then he, would, he should be willing to sell his property for his neighbor's welfare. You see, no amount of sin is too great for God to forgive. But a self-righteous person has the greatest impediment to saving faith because he never sees his need for a savior. So we don't, you know, beat non-Christians over the head with the law to compel them to do better or to try harder so we can all live in a more orderly society. We lead them to a place of despair until they can see Christ as their only solution. Nor do we, as Christians, focus on all the New Testament laws in order to grow in our own Christ-likeness. Now, it's good to read them. It's good to be aware of them, study them. But our focus, our focus should be our standing in grace. Romans 5.2 Though Christ, through Christ, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You see, grace is not a place that we visit from time to time every time we blow it. No. It is our perpetual place of standing. It's like standing... How many of you took a shower this morning? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> I don't want to know who didn't. <laughs> Imagine, though, standing in a shower 24 hours a day. That's what it's like standing in grace. Titus 2, 11 and 12 says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. What is it that trains us to grow in all these wonderful ways and become more and more like Jesus? Not the law, not more guilt, not dwelling on all our failures. Counterintuitively, it is the grace of God and our forgiveness and acceptance and freedom from condemnation that actually causes us to grow. A second modern-day use of the law is its usefulness and its promises to all believers throughout time. Now, some people think that you know, none of the Old Testament promises really apply to New Testament believers. And it's true. They were often intended for a specific people at a specific time under specific circumstances. But it also says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, Jesus that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Take, for example, the popular Old Testament promise of Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. How many of you have claimed that? <clears throat> this is not a direct promise given for each of us. It was given to the Jews when God was going to bring Israel out of captivity and bring them back into their homeland. So it doesn't mean that bad things will never happen to us as believers, but it does tell us something about the heart of God. 
that we can take comfort in. It tells us that God has a loving attitude toward his people and that he desires to bring us good and not harm. So we don't take all the Old Testament promises as, at face value as though they were our own, but <clears throat> we don't discard them all as irrelevant either. They all find their ultimate fulfillment in the person, work, and character of Christ. And lastly, the law is, a, is useful in anticipating the need of a new and better covenant. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. So the new covenant is not exactly about abolishing the law, but rather it's, it's more like the location of the law, right? It's no longer written on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And that's an upgrade. <laughs> Hebrews 8, 6 says, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent then the old, as the covenant he mediates, is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Now, the, the promises of the Old Testament included all kinds of temporal blessings. You know, your, your cattle won't uh, have, you know, they'll have healthy births and your crops won't fail and you won't have blights or famines and, and you'll prosper and all that. But the promises of the new covenant include complete forgiveness of sin Adoption as God's children and eternal life. Just to name a few. The old covenant could do none of those things. And we learn why in Hebrews 10, 1 to 3. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year to make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise... Would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So the giving of the Old Testament law, if you read that passage, which, which I think we read a few weeks ago, it was a glorious thing. Glorious. But the new covenant, it's way more glorious. 2 Corinthians 3, 7 to 11, look at this. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone, the old covenant, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the, in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. 
Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So, see if we can summarize this a little bit. That might be a little small to read, but let me just read this. These are just some of the main contrasts between the Old and New Covenant, the law versus the New Testament. The Old Covenant was static. It was written on stone. The New Covenant is dynamic. It's written on human hearts. The Old was glorious. The New is more glorious. The Old was to end, and the New will never end. The Old was a ministry of death. The New is a ministry of life. The old, a ministry of condemnation. The new, a ministry of reconciliation. The old was powerless to save. The new is powerful to save. The old was about the outer form of the flesh. The new is about an inner reality of the spirit. The old was the law of Moses. The new, the law of the Messiah. The old was the law of sin and death. The new is the law of the spirit of life. The old was a law of works. The new is a law of faith. The old was shadows and types. The new is the substance. The old, there were were many sacrifices. In the new, there's just one sacrifice. In the old, there was yearly atonement for sin. In the new, there is eternal atonement. In the old, there was an earthly tabernacle. In the new, there's a heavenly tabernacle. So, it's now time for the question of the week. Are you ready? Chad, are you out there? All right, here's the question. What have I got in my pocket? (laughs) My nasty little pocketses. No, I just had to get a Hobbit reference in there, sorry. Here's the question. (laughs) String? No, no, no. Here it is. Are you ready? Fill in the blank of this verse. Sin is, if you don't know what it is, you can look up the verse, 1 John 3, 4. This is our one-word definition of sin. 7 through 12, 7 through 12, and if you've never done it before this summer. Okay, I think I saw Bree first. Bree. Okay, Bree, tell us your name and how old you are. I am Bree, and I'm 10, and... The word is lawlessness. That's right. Very good. Bree, for that awesome answer, we have a summer travel edition of Connect Four. It's a great game. Enjoy. All right, with that, we are going to transition into communion. Band, you can come on back up. And if you are gluten-free, as you you know the drill, please raise your hand and we will get that to you promptly. So communion is for all who have done what we've just been talking about this morning. For all who have put their trust in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of their sins. It's that simple. It's not complicated If you haven't done that, I invite you to make that decision this morning. Before we partake together, I'd just like to read 
like you to read a passage with me out of John chapter 6. So I think this will kind of get our minds in preparation for this. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourself. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And that last sentence is evidence. We believe that that Jesus was not saying that these elements of, of the bread and the wine for communion become his literal flesh and blood as some Christians are taught and, and believe we don't believe that because he said these, this isn't literal this is, this is spiritual Jesus is with us he abides with us it says and we in him he in us till the end of the age and at that time this thing we call communion it's going to change Instead of communion, it's just going to be union. It's going to be union. We will be united with him forever and ever. So let me pray and then we can take it together. Lord Jesus, we're here before you as broken, fallen, sinful, imperfect vessels for your spirit to indwell. We thank you that there was a point in our lives that you pursued us just like a husband woos his bride and you you pursued us, Lord. You revealed yourself to us in a personal way beyond just mere head knowledge. And you showed us your incredible love for us when you took those nails into your flesh and the spear to your chest so that one day we could have that union with you for all eternity. And it was voluntary. You were under no obligation to do that for us. All we know, Lord, is that 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 is the supreme demonstration of love that has or ever will be. And we, we worship you for that. We, we 
look at these elements and we, we are reminded of your blood, your physical, tangible blood and your physical, tangible body that were sacrificed, perfect and holy for us, the perfect for the imperfect, so that we might know you, so that we might have eternal life. And Lord, there's nothing we can offer you in return but to take the cup of salvation and call on your name. And we do that now, and we give you thanks in love and worship. Amen.